Welcome to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring neurofeedback tech legend Jay Gunkelman. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. My name is Pete, and today we're going to talk about Jay Gunkelman. Yes, that jigsaw puzzle that we've heard about all through the years. We're going to put the pieces together. I doubt we're going to fit it all on one show, but we're going to try. Well, before we get to the Jay Gunkelman story, we got some Patreon love to dish out. We are supported by listeners and businesses just like you, like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience Incorporated. The creators of NeuroGuide, the premier EEG assessment and training software whose demo version can be downloaded from the link here. Hey, attend ANI's pre-conference workshop at the ISNR 2022 conference Wednesday, July 27th, between 8 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. The workshop will concentrate on assessment and protocol preparation using the Neuro Navigator and the Symptom Checklist, which includes cerebellar ROIs and uses SW Loretta for more precise targeting and cross-frequency coupling. Training will be introduced. And hey, if you want a coupon code, email Pete at Neuronoodle.com. I'll hook you up. Learn more at AppliedNeuroscience.com slash NeuroGuide. Hey, thanks to our silver supporters, Mary Tracy's awesome QEG training program at EEGStrategies.com and MindMedia's Nexus EEG Amplifier. Welcome aboard, Erwin. They're at MindMedia.com. I, I got a little idea for you. See see what you think. You may like it. You may not like it. How about the Jay Gunkelman story? <laughs> That's a long and winding tale. <laughs> well, we got, <laughs> we got a morning to kill. We, we talk about bits and pieces on the show, but it'd be nice to kind of connect them all together. I mean, I've heard about Fargo and and uh, your 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 background going up, but but maybe we could connect the dots on the show if you're if you're interested or up to it, Jay. I, I don't like to focus on myself, so it's a little I, I well, you know, I tooting know, my own horn essentially is what it feels like, and that's not my favorite thing to do. Um, well, was it your I, idea? It's my idea, so it's you know. <laughs> <laughs> so so Jay. Where, where did you, where were you born? I was born in Fargo at uh, St. Luke's Hospital. <laughs> well, it's the biggest hospital in Fargo, but Fargo at the time was 48,000 people. So, yeah. you know, it was, it was still then the biggest city in North Dakota, but North Dakota had 630,000 people in the state. So, uh, you know, there's bigger cities here in California than that whole state. How did your parents find North Dakota? My uh, grandfather... Uh, was uh, educated at the Ohio State University. Uh, his father uh, was the uh, patent holder for the leaf spring for Winton, which was a car company that the car that made it coast to coast. And uh, they, they did a, a documentary, Horatio's uh, uh, Drive or Horatio's Trip or something like that. He sold the patent of leaf spring to GM. We actually had a a family picture of uh, Henry Ford and the head of GM sitting at a table talking about the future of the horseless carriage and um, decided to sell uh, to GM. He could afford to send his kid to the Ohio State University way long time ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, my grandfather and I'm old. Imagine he was, <laughs> this is a long time ago now. He was an engineer and he was engineering for the railroad. Uh, going across North Dakota. He grew up, his father spoke German. They spoke German at home. Yeah. Uh, so he 
he was fluent in German. And North Dakota is full of German, uh, not the eastern edge, which is more Scandinavian. Uh, the Swedes and Norwegians argue back and forth about, well, they joke about each other, the same joke with a different different group, you know. So the Germans uh, settled the plains in North Dakota. And uh, there's Berlin, not New Berlin, but Berlin, Kalm, yeah. uh, Strasbourg, uh, where Lawrence Welk grew up. I mean, and in Strasbourg, even to this day, uh, kids learn English when they get to school. They don't, it's still spoken not at home typically. He could speak to the farmers as he's uh, as he's surveying across their land. He took a vacation, went up to Canada, and he found himself standing in the middle of a wheat field, you know, looking, you know, for geese basically to shoot. And he realized that there was no rust in the wheat. Rust is a fungus, and it ruins wheat. You know, you lose a small percentage of your crop to it as a fairly yeah. routine thing. Uh, but he saw there was no rust. So he realized because of his education, this is a genetically unique little patch of wheat that has no rust. So it's genetically rust resistant. So he bought 800 bushels of wheat from that farmer. But he's in Canada with 800 bushels of wheat. You can't like drive it across the border. Uh, he rented the whiskey. Instead of hauling whiskey, he hauled seed. And uh, he bought a grain elevator in North Dakota and started to store the grain there. And because he knew some of the farmers, he would go to them and say, I've got these magic seeds that don't get rust. <laughs> if, you, if you keep this grain separate from the rest of it that you raise at the end of the year, you can keep 2%. You give me back 98% of the, of the seed, but you can keep 2% for your use going forward. So he basically okay. filled a grain elevator after a couple seasons. And about that time, uh, if you didn't buy rust-resistant wheat seeds, your crop rusted out. So he made a small fortune uh, selling genetically unique uh, wheat seeds. He basically uh, realized that uh, th that was a unique crop because of his education. Now, my dad was in the... R.F. Gunkelman and Sons uh, business selling wheat and seeds and chemicals and whatnot. And he realized, obviously, the importance of genetics because of his father's, my grandfather's uh, observation. And he developed the oil bearing sunflower seed genetic strain. Uh, he actually went to Russia, actually to the Ukraine, back when it was still propped planes uh, and talk to the scientists there. The translators were making sure that there wasn't any uh, intellectual property being stolen or anything. Uh, as he was about to get back on the plane, the head scientist gave him a big bag of sunflower seeds. He said, you've got to have something to eat on the plane. And uh, inside of this big bag were the three genetic variants in small bags covered with just regular sunflower seeds to eat on the top. So as he's eating down, he realized they handed him the, the genetic strains that, uh, that, that, were, uh, that had been identified there. And then he crossbred that. Actually, he contracted with the university here, UC Davis, and uh, in the Woodland area of California, they, they would put bags over the top of the sunflower uh, head and then deliberately uh, crossbreed them the old-fashioned way, not 
genetic engineering, but uh, hybridization from uh, uh, from the pollination. So the family had some, you know, tenth of a penny per hundred weight or something from any oil bearing sunflower seed went into a family trust. And uh, uh, now the North Dakota State University, the bison, go bison, end up with that uh, trickle going into them now instead of the family. <laughs> we <laughs> smuggled in seeds from other countries as a family, apparently we're smugglers <laughs> yeah. and, <laughs> um, or inventors. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I had a very uh, idyllic 1950s uh, upbringing in Fargo, uh, living in the summer in the lakes in Minnesota, uh, yeah. a large house on the lake and, you know, skiing and speed boats and, yeah. you know, uh, they have uh, a, a quiz that you can give to kids that's called aces the, the you know horrible experience of childhood uh, uh, survey and uh, you get a score from zero to ten and uh, if you've had a traumatic childhood yeah. anything over four on that scale you expect later life negative health on, uh, outcomes so i get this zero you know <laughs> so i mean i had such a good childhood i feel guilty you know <laughs> so when I went to the university, uh, my expenses were covered, basically. Yeah. I, Did your parents make you study something, or were you able to pick no. what you no, – okay. No, I, uh, I was in honors program. They thought I was smart or something, you know, and I actually – I've got this pet peeve. I don't like to stand in lines. Yeah. And back then, uh, registering for the university, you'd stand in a line, and you'd get a punch card back then. And you had to get a punch card for every class you were going to take. And then you'd gather all of those punch cards and you go to the advisor and they would look over what you had picked and they would sign an advisor card and they would bundle them and then send them to the computer center. I just stood at the door. I watched the process. and I... At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Realized, oh, it all goes to the computer center. So I just went to the computer center and uh, <laughs> I registered for whatever I wanted. Uh, you strike up a friendship with the guys at the computer center and they, you know, they would punch it in for any class you wanted. Um, they were a little leery about the advisor card because I signed my own advisor card. I was self-advised, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, they, and that gave them the willies a little bit, but I asked them, well, when you're done with the advisor cards and everything, where do they go? Oh, they go to a warehouse. They ever come back? No. So they said, ah, what the hell, go ahead. And uh, so I, I just took whatever I wanted. And in honors program, you don't have to take uh, physical education. But, you know, there was a, I was on the swim team. Uh, my family all swam. Uh, my first entry into the water at the lakes was at six months old. I had a swim coach when I was four. Uh, the family, if we would have uh seceded from the Fargo swim uh, AAU summer and been a, a family that was a team 
uh, we would have taken second in the state uh, uh, as as a family. <laughs> My brother was recruited to the Naval Academy as a swimmer. He actually beat Spitz in backstroke. Um, uh, oh, really? Yeah. And so uh, how, how many how many brothers and sisters? One older brother and four younger sisters. And my my oldest sister, when she was 16, got a national gold medal uh, in 100 meter freestyle uh, AAU summer uh, program. And she was 16. She was one hell of a swimmer. I mean, really, really, really good. And she got turned on to boys and realized that if you beat boys, it doesn't really go well for them. So she quit. <laughs> Uh, which was, I, I think, really kind of a mistake. But, you know, the 16-year-old, uh, yeah, yeah. your judgment is that of a 16-year-old, you know. The whole family swam and competed. Uh, I was a judge at a swimming meet. I actually disqualified my second older sister, Carol, in Butterfly. She did what's called a flutter butter. Her her feet didn't stay together uh, for the kick. They, they kind of fluttered, more, more like you're kicking in a freestyle yeah, and uh, it's an illegal form of the stroke. So I just you you, you ding my your grandmother sister. just about <laughs> disinherited me for that. You know, she was so pissed. So you got to call it like integrity, it. integrity. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I went to the University of North Dakota uh, in Grand Forks for three years. Oh. I was in pre med, and I was accepted in medical school at uh, it was a pre med prep course basically to go to University of Minnesota Med School. My dad wanted me to be a, 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 a medical doctor, and yeah. I assisted in some surgery uh, at the hospital in Fargo. He was on the board because they wanted his money, you know? Uh, so he arranged for me to sit in on a surgery. Observation, because, or you were standing yeah, next no, to him? I was right there next to him okay. and uh, assisted in a few different surgeries that day. And um, I realized it wasn't really for me. Yeah. Um, you know, it was kind of like a, a seamstress because there's fancy stitchery, kind of like a butcher because you're working with a slab, you know. Yeah. Uh, and kind of like an auto mechanic because you're swapping parts. And those are technical trades, not really something that was going to tax my creativity. And I realized I'm going to be bored to death doing the same surgery again and again uh, as a surgeon. Yeah, you get good at something and that's what you're you focus on. And I I realize when I'm bored, I'm really no fun to be with. So um, I decided that I didn't want to be a, a medical doctor. And uh, in 1969, my dad gave me a credit card. Now, think of it. 1969 credit cards, a Bank AmeriCard uh, uh, was right. the first credit card. He handed me a credit card and said, go to Europe. And sow your wild oats, whatever the freak that means, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, you'll come back with your head screwed on straight, and you you get into medical school. So, 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 what year of college? Sophomore year, junior year? Uh, that was my third year, uh, okay. nineteen sixty nine. Okay. And uh, graduated from uh, the the Fargo North High School, the uh, Go Spartans. You know, we're having our fifty fifth annual reunion on uh, the fifteenth year. Uh, which I can't attend because I can't travel, right. uh, but th we're setting it up so so there's a virtual presence as well, so I can say hi to old friends. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I went to Europe and goofed around. So quite your a long junior time. year, junior year, you took a break and you went to Europe. You come back, okay? Yeah, and I goofed around, 
uh, long enough over there. When I came back, it was between semesters at school. Now, this was back when the Vietnam War draft was still yeah. quite active, and you got a draft number. My number was 51. Fargo that year took to 150-something. Uh, so I would have gone, except when I got back, I was in between semesters, and I did some work. Had to wait for a few months to get the next semester. So I, I didn't have my student deferment. But um, unfortunately, on the job, um, we, we were boring uh, underneath railroad tracks and laying a cable for Ma Bell when Ma Bell was still Ma Bell. And uh, the, when their crew uh, didn't want to do something, they would stop and stub up the cable. And, uh, and then contract subcontractors, the company I was working for, subcontracted. And uh, they were paid an outrageously large fee f- to finish the part that their crew didn't want to do. So we went, we, we crossed rivers, we crossed swamps, crossed the, the face of rock-filled, earth-filled dams, and go ahead and try and trench in a bunch of rocks, you know. Um, so, so hold on, we, Jay. You, you, you took a break, you came back, you finished your senior year and your first job is laying cable. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and okay. I ended up getting my hand caught in a V-belt power drive and a trencher. I cut those four fingers off and had them put back on. You know, you can see the what's called a mallet deformity. Uh, the yeah. end of this one doesn't have any extensor on it. The, the tip of the little finger, I never did find the tip on the little finger. Um, that, that's reconstruction. A little bit of stainless steel and uh, some skin graft over the top of it. Um, did you get compensated for that back then or like? No, no. No, no workman's comp or anything? No, yeah, okay. no, no, no. Okay. No, I, I can't salute properly. Right. <laughs> So the only other person I ever knew that got a one Y was President Trump for his bone spurs. I mean, the other people got him, but yeah. a four F was a physical deferment. One Y is a physical deferment. But if there's a declared war and Vietnam was a police action, not a declared war. So they they couldn't in, they couldn't bring me into the military because I had this bent finger. I yeah. couldn't salute properly. So I didn't get inducted. And uh, and I got my student deferment back when I went back to school and uh, I switched universities from University of North Dakota. Uh, again, the intention was med school there. I, I went to North Dakota State University, having told my dad I don't want to be a doctor. So I switched schools. I went to uh, NDSU, go Bison, uh, seven national championships out of the last decade. Good uh, football the, the, team. Yeah, damn good. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> uh, Trey Lance at is like his second year as a pro he came out of ndsu mm-hmm. so uh, for for 49ers he's gonna be the quarterback this year and so carson wentz it's, it's quite a quite a program him. and the the team builders back there i mean fargo is freaking crazy about the bison football uh, it, it's crazier about the bison than anything other than perhaps raiders fans you know the, uh, they're they're pretty hard to beat you know yeah yeah <laughs> i went to ndsu and um, my medical school prep background was heavy on science and um, you know, biological stuff. And physiological psychology was a fairly new uh, form of psychology. And biofeedback was the physiological psychology application at the time. And um, uh, so I, I did uh, physiological psychology and also philosophy world religions and philosophy. I did a double major. Okay. And uh, 
uh, after a few years of that in 1972, uh, we wrote a grant and started the state hospital uh, lab. Uh, and I didn't have a degree. Uh, I had a lot of years of schooling, but no yeah. degree. But they funded the lab based on the grant. It was successful. A couple of years after we started the lab in uh, 1974, I lectured at the medical school at UND and then also uh, at NDSU in the psych department back at where I w- went to school. My professors pulled my transcripts, which, again, had no advisor. Uh, it was all self-advised. Yeah. And um, uh, they, they said, you know, we've never seen a transcript as bizarre as this. You signed your own advisor cards. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, I was self-advised. Uh, and uh, they, they said, well, you know, we can have you come back to the university for one semester and we can give you a, a Bachelor of Science uh, degree. Uh, just take a, a language credit and we can give you a BS degree. And I said, let me get this straight. Your students are in an uproar because if Jay doesn't need a degree to get his lab, why do we need to get a degree? And because of that, you want me to leave my laboratory that's really <laughs> successful and come back for one semester to take a freaking language credit so that your students aren't in an uproar. Your students' uproar is your problem, not mine. Forget it. I'm not going to leave my lab to come back and take a language credit. (laughs) About a week later, in the mail, I get a degree. And I called my professor immediately. I said, what are you running, a degree mill? I got this thing in the mail, you know. And uh, he said, well, we petitioned on your behalf. uh, that They agreed, and so we're sending you the the degree. Oh, uh, no way. I repackaged and I sent it back to my parents because they had paid for it, you know, in right. uh, their wisdom. They stuck it back with all the kind of stuff they collected about me. And I, I got a suitcase uh, as an adult full of stuff from my childhood from the lab uh, at, at the state hospital. The first biofeedback lab at a state hospital, well, probably the first um, in, in the world. I mean, the, it was the first in the U.S. for sure. I don't know of anyone anywhere else that did it. We are supported by listeners and businesses just like you, like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience Incorporated, the creators of NeuroGuide, the premier EEG assessment and training software whose demo version can be downloaded from the link here. Hey, attend ANI's pre-conference workshop at the ISNR 2022 conference Wednesday, July 27th, between 8 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. The workshop will concentrate on assessment and protocol preparation using the Neuro Navigator and the Symptom Checklist, which includes cerebellar ROIs and uses SW Loretta for more precise targeting and cross-frequency coupling. Training will be introduced. And hey, if you want a coupon code, email Pete at Neuronoodle.com. I'll hook you up. Learn more at AppliedNeuroscience.com slash NeuroGuide. We did alpha training for the alcoholics in the alcoholism drug division and found it to be so effective that we actually wrote a grant in 1974, a grant application for alpha training in alcoholics. This was over a decade before Peniston's publication in 1989. Yeah, it worked really well. And uh, uh, but they didn't fund anything back then. There was a, a very poorly done study by Paschkowitz and Orn uh, in the early 70s. And after that, uh, the federal government quit funding anything in neurofeedback. So, um, you know, it, it, it went uh, unfunded, but it didn't mean we didn't do the work. We, you know, we kept doing it because it was effective. Yeah. And then 1975, 
um, uh, the the state hospital started to say, well, you know, right now you're taking your entire staff to this national conference, and uh, you know we want to cut back on your budget, and uh, you can send one, and they'll come back and tell everybody what they learned. I said, well, goodbye, <laughs> and I packed up and I went to California to try and start manufacturing what we had to build our own equipment back then. So we started to manufacture equipment for uh, biofeedback. We had a temperature training device and a muscle two channel muscle feedback device that was FDA registered. You know, we made a pocket sized brainwave analyzer and didn't sell any of them. (laughs) There wasn't any funding. So, you know, why would you buy one? Uh, EG wasn't being funded. So, uh, and I realized you know, I'm pounding money down this rat hole of manufacturing into this niche market. And uh, so I, I applied to get a job, uh, looked in the newspaper, found the funniest little tiny ad, uh, uh, S-M-M-E-D-C-O-N-D-S-F-L-D-R-E-F and a phone number, small medical company needs field rep and, uh, and a phone number. So I called and it was an EG job. And I thought, well, geez, uh, uh, how fortunate. So I went in and interviewed and I had a ponytail I could sit on and, you know, <laughs> you pull up in a chopper. Says, you are perfect for the job, but uh, you won't ever get in to speak to the vice president. Uh, who's the next level up on the interviews uh, because you, uh, you know, the job is going to be meeting with doctors and hospital administrators in the upper Midwest and, you know, long hair and a beard isn't right. really going to cut it. So <laughs> uh, I cut my hair, uh, sent the braid home to my mother who had been telling me to cut my hair for a decade. And <laughs> uh, and at, at that point, uh, went in for my next interview with a, kind of a blocked off uh, haircut at the back. It wasn't like a Beatles cut, but it was a little more, it wasn't like tr- trimmed up. And um, the second guy the vice president basically interviewed me and said you're perfect for the job but you're going to be meeting with hospital administrators and doctors and you're going to have to get a haircut yeah and i said yesterday i could sit on a ponytail i would shave the damn hair off if you want i mean what kind of style are you looking for you know? and his jaw dropped I mean, he was but he really needed somebody who knew their stuff so they hired me and for eight months i traveled from montana to ohio uh, the entire upper midwest uh, at least a third of the United States selling and the equipment. Hospi- uh, no hospitals no. there had had the equipment, but they had been trained by somebody who didn't know EEG, and he taught them the three finger electrode placement system. Three fingers up, stick an electrode. Three fingers up, stick an electrode. For a little kid, you had electrodes on the back of their neck, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, for, yeah. And you know, for somebody like yourself with a good sized noggin, yeah. uh, you, you're all on the on the front half of your head. So, <laughs> um, so I, I taught them the 1020 placement system and how to measure and place electrodes and uh, and got them transmitting good quality EEGs into the okay. center. But after eight and a half months or so on the road, you know, four, five, six weeks out at a time, uh, I just got fried on. You know, what day is it? Where the freak am I? You know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Driving into International Falls in the winter in the middle of a blizzard, you know, um, the, the hospital was sh- shocked I actually showed up. 
I, I grew up driving on ice. I mean, what the hell? No big yeah, deal. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, so I, I told them, well, I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I can't do this traveling anymore. So uh, they made me the, uh, the head tech in their uh, receiving laboratory. And that's where I got the 500,000 EEGs, 100 a day. Yeah, minimum 100 a day. There were days that we topped 200, but those are really not very common. Being in the 150 or so is real common. But we topped 100 pretty much every single day. Now, now that was the old school with the pens and the ink. and. Yep. Uh, yep. What, uh, what do you call those, Jay, so I can look them up? Well, uh, we had a grass model one, a grass model three. Uh, we had some Beckmans. Uh, the, the old Beckmans, which Beckman was bought out by Teka, which is okay. bought out by Nicolay, which is now the the primary uh, manufacturer in the U.S. Grass Instruments and Nicolay are the two uh, okay. big companies. And and uh, Neon Coden, um, we had some of those, uh, the, the, the very first Neon Codens that came into the U.S. Um, uh, from Japan. They've got uh, pictures of the room. Uh, it's got a, an island in the middle of a couple of desks and a, a big telephone system. And you'd take a history on the phone, a very brief history, and then you'd patch it over to a phone that was hooked up to a writer unit and you'd receive the calibrations and adjust everything and, uh, and then tell them, okay. And they it, it was eight channels or 10 channels of EEG. That's all you could squeeze into a voice grade phone line. And uh, it, it was parallel data systems made the equipment. Uh, it was... Uh, parallel carrier frequencies that were frequency modulated by the amplitude of the EEG. So you'd have you know, eight separate frequencies that would go up and down in frequency based on the size so, of the EEG. So this is like a phone modem. You plug it in yep. old school. Yep. Okay. Okay. Yep. And the, the modem was a custom modem just for transmitting EEGs. Um, we, we had the first transmission from the Gibbs Laboratory in 1974. Uh, I can actually send you the the image of those okay. uh, on paper that had Gibbs. You know, they had their own uh, custom logo on all their paper. Uh, it was uh, transmitted into Gibbs and Gibbs in in Chicago. When did that modem come out? Because that's like a transformative day for yeah. EEG. It was the like... first telemedicine uh, before yeah. the term telemedicine existed. Uh, what, there was... what year about? You know, uh, it, it that came out in uh, probably seventy three, seventy four as okay. a as a hardware brand new again parallel data systems. Uh, Doctor Shear uh, in San Francisco, and then Doctor Proler in Houston. Did and you see the business take off? Other. I mean, EEGs take off then, or did still? I mean, we're still fighting today. It was but... still in the heyday of EEG yeah. then. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, this was before CT and MRI took over, uh, you know, you could get an x-ray to look for something structural in the head, but, you know, x-rays were kind of crude um, by comparison to MRIs and CTs, which could see more detail. And uh, the, the Mayo Clinic's laboratory was famous for being able to uh, find tumors with the EEG. Uh, Dr. Charlie Yeager, MD, PhD, uh, was the the, uh, started the Mayo Clinic's lab and then came out in the 50s and started Langley Porter in San Francisco. He actually was one of the doctors who read out our lab, and I learned a great deal about EEG from him. EEG lab, 
you know, from basically 76 uh, on. And um, in the early 1990s is when I kind of crudely just did a calculation of 100 a day. You know, you come up with 500,000. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a conservative estimate. But when nobody believes that 500,000, why are you going to do an accurate calculation, you know? So uh, and it's hard to imagine that many, really, quite honestly. And at this point, I know of no doctor in the world who's seen as many EGs as I have. Uh, oh, there's Dr. no Paul doubt on Houston that. Had, uh, John Hughes at Northwestern had, but he's passed now. Um, you know, I, but I, there's nobody out there that, that's got that kind of a volume. Do you remember and, when it turned from ink to digital about? Uh, well, yeah. In, in the 70s, digital EG uh, started, but it was really funky. Uh, 128 samples a second or 100 samples a second. And your EG you know, slow wave. What is it today? Like a step graph, you know, it looks like, look like a, a, a an Inca pyramid, a step pyramid or something, you know, so uh, uh, low sampling rate and, um, you know, uh, obviously problems uh, that were just due to uh, uh, sample rate and uh, an eight bit um, instead of uh, 14 bit or more, you can kind of describe the EG uh, range of, of voltages, but an eight bit, You've got to pre-scale it to to make it fit. If it's a big EEG, uh, you'd clip everything. So, yeah, digital stuff started. uh, It took a while to get better. Um, Marvin Sams, who uh, was the inventor of ElectroCap, um, worked for a company called Biologic, which was the first reasonably uh, good uh, company that did digital uh, quantitative EEG. And, uh, And Marvin... Uh, had uh, cut his teeth as the head of research uh, EG at Mayo Clinic uh, before he uh, worked with NASA to develop the cap. I have to say, EG Techs did not like the cap when it came out. What was it, what was it like? Techs, well, it, it wasn't any different than the ElectroCap International is now, really. Um, yeah. Yeah, and But the, the art of EEG was the ability to measure and place electrodes, apparently. And the adjet was their journal, American Journal of uh, EG technology, but then it became electroneurodiagnostic technology later. Uh, but they set up a study, and uh, uh, the honor of text basically, the study didn't turn out the way they wanted, but they published it anyway. Um, the EG electrocap had more reliable placements than the measurement and and then remeasurement uh, by registered text. And a, a, a cap placed properly gives you the same spots really well. And you have a little variability. You know, you, you measure and you make a mark with a China marker, but the mark's got some dimension to it. And if you measure repeatedly and you add the dimension of the line to the dimension of the line, by the time you're at the back of the head, you're off by about a centimeter. It's, it's a little far off. But then actually the, the placement of the electrode needs to still be accurate. But we had always assumed that the electrode placement would put you on just the right gyrus or just at the right sulci, and everybody had this, like, standardized brain. Well, you know, with the MRI coming on, uh, they actually tagged with a little magnetic uh, die where each of the electrodes were going to be placed, and they, they looked across a, a few people and, and then morph those spots to an idealized brain is exactly where the electrode was over. And they found there's a lot of variability on how the brains are structured. Uh, so 
we still want to put them all in a symmetrical proper spot for replication, but you can't assume that it's on the same exact spot. There's a lot of variability and, you know, nowadays everybody uh, ends up having a standardized brain on Loretta with EG lab. You can actually uh, uh, do a Loretta like source analysis with the person's own MRI. Uh, you have to bring in the matrix of the MRI to end up matching them up, but uh, you don't have to source analyze assuming it was to a standardized location. Anyway, in the mid nineties, uh, uh, 1994, 95, uh, the American medical EG association, Amiga, uh, which Dr. Shearer, the head doctor of the group in San Francisco was a, one of the, well, the officers in that as an organization it was started by Gibbs and Gibbs. Uh, the American EG uh, Society had kind of taken Gibbs and Gibbs' original identification of a bunch of patterns that were seen in epilepsy, and they, they could find them in people that didn't have epilepsy. So they started to declare them normal variants instead of an abnormal finding that was nonspecific. And Gibbs and Gibbs really thought that was uh, subscientific and uh, they they were uh, upset, uh, and so they started their own. Instead of the American EG Association uh, Society, they started the American Medical EG Association, Amiga, and uh, Amiga uh, ended up merging. Uh, and there, it's ECNS now, EG and Clinical Neuroscience Society, and uh, uh, as an organization, approved QEG for clinical application. And as soon as that was stated that it's ready for clinical application, I started providing EG, QEG processing service as a commercial service. Not a lot of customers. It was the first ever commercial service. And, you know, but most of my early customers are now providing EG, QEG analysis services for others. So it worked out pretty well. I don't try and develop a dependency. I hope to educate the customers so that they can do it on their own eventually anyway. So, you know, I I never felt like I was competitive with any of them. It's not competition anyway. It's co-opetition. So I'm happy to see them succeed and grow the pie. I was in the field early, and uh, there, there was a group that got together, and they wanted to start this QEG certification body. And they, they invited me to a meeting and uh, they put me on a committee along with a bunch of other people, Marvin Sams and, and a few others. They were supposed to write questions. Everybody was to submit a bunch of questions. And then the, the group was going to then pick questions from everybody and make up the exam. Well, I got all excited. You know, I'm an excitable kind of a kid. And I, I wrote some multiple choice. I wrote some a brief one sentence essay uh, with a couple of keywords that had to be in it, um, some matching, um, a draw a brain with a certain number of, of uh, uh, structures had to be identified. And I had all these little, you know, crazy true false and, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 simple definitions. And You're pretty whatnot. passionate. And, you know, I, one day I would do a batch and the next day I got excited. Well, true false, you know, that's a, what, a bunch of true false. And then, Oh, how about some foundational stuff about uh, the digital EG process? And as an excitable kid, I sent in a whole bunch of these 20, 30 questions at a time. Uh, nobody else turned in any. 
and they wanted to do an exam. So they renumbered all the ones I sent in. That was the first exam. And it, it, for, for, it for which, a, uh, what was the name of the, the QEG certification board? Okay. And it, that went fine. Um, it was a tough exam. It, 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 it tested your statistical assumptions. It tested neuroanatomy. It tested some simple EEG stuff, but it was a tough exam. It had a 40% pass rate. And one of the people on the board uh, failed it and they had to take it not to, to be certified because they were going to get certified. Uh, uh, they had to take it to like standardize and critique the exam. So he bombed it. And everybody who took the exam, I would write him a letter whether they passed or failed and said, you know, congratulations or we're sorry you didn't quite make it. Here's the areas you need to study. But even if you passed, you might have bombed an area that you need to study. So everybody got a letter suggesting a couple of references and areas that they could brush up on. So he got a, a note like everybody did. You could, you know, next time you take the exam, uh, study up on these things, you'll do better. And he took the exam a second time, did even worse, took it a third time, <laughs> bombed it, the worst of all of them he'd ever done. Um, his his lady friend was on the certif certification body that's chartered certifying bodies. That's a, a national, it used to be governmental, but it become a quasi-governmental private entity, but they chartered certification bodies. And it was his girlfriend who was the executive director there. And he had them, he had them write a letter saying, well, Jay is teaching and uh, he wrote the exam. So we think he's teaching the exam and uh, you've got to strip him of his certification. Uh, and uh, so the, the certifying body board comes to me and said, Oh my God, we got this letter from the chartering body. What do we do? I said, what do you mean? What do you do? Don't you know what a sacrificial lamb is all about? You save the herd. So take my certification and continue to certify people. And they, they wanted to write a new exam and, you know, so write a new exam. But you've got to be able to continue to certify. So they stripped me of my certification. But I was the president-elect for ISNR, and I notified the ISNR board, hey, guys, uh, I, I just lost my certification. Under your bylaws, I can't be in your society anymore because I lost a certification. If you lose a certification or licensure, you couldn't be a member. Well, they said, well, before we just, you know, find a new president elect, uh, we're going to write a letter of inquiry. And they wrote to the certifying body and the chartering organization and the chartering organizations board of directors didn't know the executive director had uh, told people to pull my, my, my certification and there was no due process. It was just a, a command to strip me. And uh, so they realized they had liability. I mean, you, if you take somebody's license or certification away in a profession that harms them, you know. Yeah. It, yeah. So. Wait, hold on, Jay. I'm I, trying to, I, I I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep up. I got a, <laughs> I got a second certificate, certificate number one. I have certificate number one from 1996. And I have it from 2001 or 2002 or something like that. They gave me n number one again, but I have two certificates with two different sets of signatures and two different dates on them. So, so they uh, took it away from you because you're the guy that wrote the test. What? And I was, and I was teaching. If and I would have known, 
if I was going to continue teaching that I, that I couldn't do it anymore, I wouldn't have written any questions, you know, um, because I enjoyed instructing about QEG. But I thought um, you started, you were there at the beginning of starting this board, or this is another one, or I, that's where I'm confused. What hit? No, there's, that... there's a, a chartering body, which charters certifying bodies. Okay. So if you want to certify people in XYZ, yeah. whatever the hell it is, you could get okay. a charter to certify people. And the chartering group was the one who said to strip me. Got so it. she lost her job. Uh, he ended up kind of getting pushed off this, the QEG board because he was being too much of an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, eventually the uh, group pressure just pushed him out. But uh, uh, then Nancy White um, uh, contacted me and said, uh, you know, you've got to come back. You got to take the exam, the new exam that we've got, and um, we'll give you your certificate number one again. So I, I took the exam and critiqued it on the on the margins. I wrote, you know, reword this, reword that. This you should re- this is needs to be redone. This is a poorly constructed. It's it's uh, ambiguous as to what the answer might be and whatnot. So I critiqued their exam as the same time as I took it. But <laughs> again, I've got two certificate number ones. There's always a backstory with with some you know, twisty, uh, nasty stuff in life, and that's one of them. Especially but, when you're you know, starting out, starting things that, up. That, that plus a buck fifty, you can get on a bus. You know, it might be two fifty <laughs> by now. For I don't know. <laughs> Hey, we thank you for listening to part one of Jay Gunkelman's story. Oh, my goodness. Part two. What is that going to be like? Stay tuned. Thank you for listening. Cue the non-copyrighted music. Thank you all for watching Neuro Noodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. We'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters. We are supported by listeners and businesses just like you, like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience Incorporated. The creators of NeuroGuide, the premier EEG assessment and training software whose demo version can be downloaded from the link here. Hey, attend ANI's pre-conference workshop at the ISNR 2022 conference Wednesday, July 27th between 8 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. The workshop will concentrate on assessment and protocol preparation using the Neuro Navigator and the Symptom Checklist, which includes cerebellar ROIs and uses SW Loretta for more precise targeting and cross-frequency coupling. Training will be introduced. And hey, if you want a coupon code, email Pete at NeuroNoodle.com. I'll hook you up. Learn more at AppliedNeuroscience.com slash NeuroGuide. Hey, Mary Tracy's Neurotraining Strategies offers a higher standard of EEG, QEG education to EEG clinicians, technicians, and neurofeedback practitioners with your convenient online BCIA and QEG certified didactic courses. Check them out at EEGstrategies.com. Hey, my media's Nexus Amplifier. Hey, full disclosure, Pete's been a customer for years, but check them out. They got a semi-dry cap coming out. You can see it live at ISNR. Say hello to great connectivity and goodbye to artifacts and paste in your client's hair. Check them out at mindmedia.com. Three things our listeners can do to help us spread the word of neurofeedback. Number one, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Number two, give us a review on whatever platform you listen to. Five stars is appreciated, but Jay Gunkelman will accept four and a half. Hey, if you have the means, please support us on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. 
There are different levels in which you can support us, whether you're a mom or dad or a clinician. There's even an option where you can have your own Q&A with our own Jay Gunkelman. This support help, helps us improve the quality of our content. Hey, trying to get these video edits even better, even better. Again, we thank you all for watching. Cue the non-copyrighted music.